my first Christmas Sunday service in First Antrim, 1986. And I was standing there having done the children's talk, which went reasonably okay. I had this big, huge um, sheet of paper that I'd done a jigsaw on, and the missing piece was Jesus, and the kids seemed to get it. And it was up in this big easel behind me, and during the last hymn, it just happened to fall over. Fall over so that it bent in the middle, and it covered me right down to here. And I was holding my hymn book trying to think, how do I get that off me while the congregation laughs? Um, And I remember finishing the service thinking, well, that's one down. Maybe 40 more of this Christmas Sunday service and I can retire. Because I thought, what am I going to say every Christmas morning? Now, I can't get enough of it. And in fact, I'm very frustrated at this Christmas because I've just mentioned six services and this is the only sermon in all six. Because I discovered as the years went on that this nativity story that we hide underneath the drying cloths of uh, children, yes, but I'm kind of hoping the Blue Shepherds tonight in the worship might know, Gary's saying no, might even have worn a, just a, you need a drying cloth for Christmas. But we've hidden this treasure trove of theology and insight under a kid's nativity. I love Christmas. I love the incarnation. In fact, in the summer, some of you were at Avoca Manor uh, for a family SU week in August. And I did five days on this Christmas story. The students down from Derevolgi Hall this morning, they got it in October. Because there is so much stuff And I can't do it all, but the good thing is, I'm hoping to be here for a year or two. I haven't moved those boxes for nothing, let me tell you. (laughs) So maybe we'll have a few years to talk about this. But over the course of the next number of days, as we come together tonight, when we'll be looking at Christmas songs, and the gospel according to Christmas songs, and in that we look at Jesus and Mary and... um, the, who was the other one? I was three in that. I was going, anyway, I'll have it better prepared for tonight, obviously. Um, we're going to look at Joseph, um, the killer's song about Joseph, which is astounding. We're going to look at those few songs tonight, but no sermon, just a few thoughts coming out of them. And then next Sunday morning with the Sounds Good Orchestra, which I've never seen before, so I'm excited, and my daughter might be in there, so I'm even more excited, uh, in the Whitlow Hall at Methody. Um, we're excited about that. And then next Sunday evening, we're going to look at, as I said in the prayer, what did Adam think of Christmas? Did he have a perspective on it? Did he have any insights? Is there anything in that Eden story? Abraham, David, what did they think? We're going to look at that in monologue next Sunday night. And then on Christmas Eve, we're going to look out with a John Bell prayer at some of the things happening around us before Christmas morning. I get to part two of the gift children's talk that you might have been wondering when I would get to that. In fact, none of you are wondering when I'd get to that because you've forgotten my first children's address already. I've been here a month after all. But in the midst of that, there's all this stuff going on that I hope we don't lose. And this morning I would go as far as to say that in my 15 years working with students, the three years before that working with young people uh, across the Republic of Ireland, that this morning is what I discovered to be the secret of that work. And it hasn't been the secret of that work for maybe a couple of hundred years, but it is back as the secret to how do we reach not just young people, but how do we reach the world for Jesus 
in the 21st century. Let me take you back to those students. Some of them are here, but not the ones I'm going to talk about now. In 15 years of ministry in Deravolgi, the one thing that kept repeating itself quite regularly, very regularly, was, was, I don't know that God loves me. I'm not sure that God loves me. Now, when Deravolgi students arrive in, we've got a file, and we know where they're from. We know where to get them, uh, if they haven't paid their rent. Um, we know all about them. For instance, um, I was sharing this um, with the CCCI group on Tuesday night, and Betty and Stanley were there, so if they want to doze off for a wee while, they can, they can do that. But for instance, I was in Vancouver in sabbatical, and one of my students, one of my students out of, I don't know, was there three, four hundred students arrived in on the Sunday I was preaching uh, in one of the churches, and uh, he came with me. And when I was telling this story, because it's not a new story, I used him as an example. So I said, I mean, congregation, we'll use the student I have before me tonight as an example. If he and he hadn't, but if he had come to me and said, I don't believe God loves me, I would have looked straight at him and I would have said, well, I know you. Your aunt was in my class at school. Your uncle also went to my school and I worked a lot in a youth club with him. Your other aunt was my boss when I was the youth development officer of the Presbyterian Church. Your dad was my doctor, and your parents I used to, or your grandparents I used to be their minister. That's how much you can know about somebody in a Northern Ireland scenario. That was Ros Sterling's uh, nephew Paddy. You see, when I look at my students, I know an awful lot about them. So when they come to me and say, I don't think God loves me, I look and I go, But your church told you God loved you. And they would say, Yes. And your parents, because most of you have come from Christian homes, your parents taught you that God loved you. Yes. And in fact, last summer you did a beach mission where you told other people that God loved them. Yes. But I still don't believe God loves me. For a period of time I ministered to that dilemma, but I was really quite confused by it. And then a friend of mine pointed me to Neil Postman's book, Amusing Ourselves to Death. And Neil Postman's book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, is about the impact of the media, the visual age, upon our education and learning. And what Postman says in that book transformed how I saw communication with my students. Because Postman says that if you learned mainly your education was on the linear, words on a page, maybe words on a blackboard, that then you picked up information generally, not 100%, but the majority of your information was picked up from the objective side of your brain. However, Postman goes on to say, if you start to learn by visual communications, that changes the very side of your brain that serves the majority of the information. And it's the subjective side of your brain that starts to serve information. I went up to Hunter House on the open night when Caitlin was thinking about going there and she was learning French through taking penalties at a screen in front of her. You got a question on the screen. If you got it right, you were able to place where your penalty was going and you took a penalty. I would have learned a lot more French had we been playing penalties in my French class, but I don't remember ever seeing a visual in my time doing French. I don't remember anything I did in French, but I certainly don't remember a visual. The difference... So I would normally say to a congregation if I was doing this, if we divided ourselves down the middle, we're not going to do that. Our hands are not going to go in there. But if you remember a television coming into your house, 
It's very possible that the majority of your information is simmed objectively because you learn mainly on a linear. But those of us, and when we lived in Daravolgi, you can't do this now, but when you lived in Daravolgi and the girls would go to the bath, I would just try to juke in and see Sky Sports News. But one night, Caitlin shouted at me from the bath because the bathroom was, in a, very, it was a very strangely designed house and uh, you could see the TV from the bathroom if you kept two doors open. So as I went to see Sky News, she told me to switch it back to, I don't know, Hannah Montana or whatever was on. And my daughter's, there's TVs everywhere. Well, we've only one in the house, but most places you go, there's visuals. So if I said to those of you who remember the first TV coming into your house, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life, it's likely that the objective side of your brain will immediately kick in and say, that's an interesting thought. Do I accept or reject it? But if I said to those of us, because I don't remember the first TV coming into my house, John 3 and 16, then probably the younger you would go, the more you would say, that's an interesting idea. I wonder if it's true. And you work out if it's true by the experience you have of the phrase. So when I eventually got through to my students as to why they didn't believe God loved them, many of them would have said, well, I'm not accepted as I am in church. You see, they were told they were loved unconditionally. They were told about grace, but their experience did not equate with the objective truth that they were told. Or their parents forced them to do something or didn't force them to do something. One girl we had to get to America because her parents were forcing her to go to Drum Cree and play a, a flute in the, the flute band and she didn't want to do that. And it caused all kinds of problems in a house that talked to her about the unconditional love of God. And she wasn't sure God loved her anymore because the body of Christ didn't. Because believers didn't. It wasn't a tangible experience of the grace of God. Now I'm from Balamina, you can tell. And immediately I get into this existentialist nonsense. I start to tell myself I'm a heretic. Because surely it is the word. The word preached. That changes lives. Well if you're from Balamina like me. Yes we do know our theology. But we maybe haven't read John 1 for a while. Because you get that tendency in Balamina. We know our theology. But we bring our theology to the text. Rather than get our text our theology from it. And this is an interesting look at the nativity. It's not the story of the nativity. It's the theology of the nativity. Here is this idea that the word was with God in the beginning. The word was God. And then in John 1 and 14, the secret of how to reach this generation the trump card, if you want to call it postmodernity, do that, but then it gets us into all kinds of caricatures of what it is. I don't know what you call it. All I know is that everything I then followed up with my students on became experiential. Tell them about fair trade, they don't get it. Take them to a fair trade vineyard, I get it now. Whatever we want to do with this generation, it is not enough to tell them it in words, they've got to experience it in action. And God trump cards that dilemma. In John 1 and 14, the word became flesh. Experiential. The word became flesh. Subjective. The word became flesh 
relational. 39 books in the Old Testament would have been enough for God to explain the truth in words. Small w. But the fullest revelation of who God is, words could not achieve it. Objective truth could not achieve it. So to have the ultimate revelation of God, God became human so that we would see it, sense it, feel it, relate to it, experience it. And I think we've got to get that back in to church ministry. It's relational. I moved to Dublin in 1991 and Frank Seller, who's now um, in Bloomfield, said to me, Steve, you're moving south. Here's something you've got to learn. In the Republic of Ireland today, it's all relational. Proclamations for the north. Well, I think now it's relational here too. And if we want to reach people for Christ, we don't put texts up trees on the way to Port Rush. Do you ever wonder how big those ladders are? <laughs> or how courageous the people are who lean a ladder up against that tree and stick that text up? You know, you're driving along merrily, having a good time, eternity where? <laughs> I, no, I'm not going to take it any further, but you didn't hear Jesus when he met Zacchaeus up a tree saying, Zacchaeus, climb on up there, there's a text for you. He said, Zacchaeus, come down out of the tree. We're going to go and have lunch together. It was not just about words. It was about relationship. And Jesus could have shouted at Zacchaeus up the tree and told him what a miserable sinner he was. But he decided that was not the way to reach Zacchaeus. That Zacchaeus needed to experience the love of God the last person in the whole of Jericho that people thought Jesus was going to have lunch with was the one he went and had lunch with. What did that do to Zacchaeus' sense of the love of God? It transformed it to the point where he was giving his money away. And actually, I know we have those. Patricia was up and John who do wonders with, well, they said it wasn't sums and figures. They use equations and formulas. But it looks to me as we look at Zacchaeus' story that he gave away a whole lot more than he had so he had it well invested. But his repentance came not because he heard the word. His repentance came because he had lunch with the word. And that's the secret. The baby in the straw is God saying to us, do we want to reach the world? Then we've got to move into the neighbourhood. We've got to pitch our tent among them. We've got to relate and befriend them. Now don't get me wrong. It doesn't mean there's no place for proclamation. My primary two teacher told my granny I talked so much I would end up a preacher. Here I am. It's what I do. But I do understand that if we want to reach this generation. And I don't mean the under 20s. I mean the under 50s then we've got to become relational. Actions now speak louder than words. And I think there was a blip. The philosophers, there are them, those in the room, they could tell us the reasons for it, but it seems that maybe in the Enlightenment project, it got very unscientific, it got very objective, you could preach something, you could live some other way. Not anymore. And that's not a new thing now. 
That's us going back to the biblical thing where Jesus was slow to speak and quick to relate. Because when he did speak, his relationship had got him such a respect and an authority that people listened. We had a 150th anniversary service at Queen's um, Thanksgiving service for Queen's University which I think was a courageous thing for our vice-chancellor to do. The four chaplains, the four main chaplains, myself included, were uh, invited into the VC's office and we put together what I thought now, with a bit of help from King's College London, we put together a liturgical service that, it was theologically rocking. The prayers, the readings, the hymns had to do with education. It had to do with Christ, God being Lord. It was just perfectly put together. And we went down to St. Anne's Cathedral and I even put robes on. And we went through this service that I, at the end of it, thought, whoa, we rocked. And then the next day in the cafe with the students, they were all going, how bad was that service last night? (laughs) And I said, well, what was bad about it? What was bad about it? Were there prayers that were wrong? Was it not poetic enough? Were the hymns not played brilliantly? Were they not well sung? Was the sermon heresy? What was bad about it? Of course we concluded there was nothing bad about it. But it still didn't relate to a younger generation. Because no matter how closely we got the objective right, what they didn't feel in the service was what they missed. The subjective wasn't there. We went through motions that the older visitors among us that night were raving about that service. But the 20-year-olds weren't getting it at all because there's a difference in how we read and hear and learn. And thank God it's already here In our worship in Fitzroy. As well as a cerebral. There is worship that connects. But then I think of. A couple of people in their late 30s. Who came to our house. One particular week. Separate nights. Not sure they know each other. And both of them. Not in any intentional conversation. Said at different times of the evening. Oh midweek Bible studies. How dull are they. Here were two elders, or no, not elders, one an elder, one pretty high up in their church. And they weren't getting comprehension every Wednesday night, they were saying. And if you start talking about yourself, they say you shouldn't be. Let's get back to the scriptures. Because they were at Bible studies that were objective, not subjective. And we're back to my starting story. How do we tell this generation that God loves them? It's how we do evangelism. We get alongside them and we love them unconditionally. And as we love them unconditionally, we will have the opportunity, even if we need it, to explain the gospel because the Holy Spirit might be ahead of us. And explaining it through our actions. So this Christmas, as we see the baby born, one of the major, major things it seems to me in my wrestling with how to reach this generation, one of the secrets lies right there in the straw.
the word has become flesh and moved in among us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you moved in among us. And we thank you it's not just words that we live by, but it's a word that became flesh and still lives among us. We pray, Lord, that we might try to understand some of these shifts in our culture as to how to communicate. Not a different truth, Lord. The exact same truth. The exact same word, because the word is Jesus. Help us as we try to reach this generation individually and as a corporate body. To see that our actions will speak louder than words. And that our love has to become flesh. And once we start to live this grace. Then people will take hold of this grace. We pray that would be so. In Christ's name. Amen.